Welcome to the Australian Hiker Podcast, Australia's longest-running hiking podcast, download over half a million times in over 145 countries, and providing you with an Australian perspective on all things hiking. I'm your host, Tim Savage, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Jill Savage. Hello, everyone. In today's episode, episode 175, we are talking to author Paul Barak about his epic journey on the Japanese-based Shikoko Pilgrimage Trail. In addition, we'll also be talking to him about his book, Fighting Monks and Burning Mountains, that came out of that epic journey. Now, before we get on to today's episode, if you would like to help support Australian Hiker and this podcast, there are a couple of ways that you can help us out. Firstly, subscribe on your podcast host of choice, so it's available as soon as it's published. And if you have the opportunity, leave us a five-star review on your podcast listening service. Another option to support us, if you like what we do, go to the Australian Hiker website at www.australianhiker.com.au and click on the supporters page and buy us a coffee. You can do a one-off donation or become a monthly supporter. All donations are greatly appreciated and help us to continue producing this podcast and blog. Now let's get on to today's episode. Now, fed up with the office job he settled for, Paul Barak decided to travel to Japan to follow a vision he had in college, to walk the ancient 1,200-kilometre Shikoku Pilgrimage Trail. Here are some of the things he decided not to do before he went. Learn Japanese, do any research, road test his hiking shoes, or check if he was going into the hottest summer on record in Japan. <laughs> he went anyway, hoping to change his life. Uh, and the book Fighting Monks and Burning Mountains is the absurd and dramatic journey of Paul's impulsive search for answers on a holy path in an exotic land. In today's episode, we talk to Paul about the Shinhoku pilgrimage and his book. This book tells the story of the amazing trail uh, and is told with humility and humour and an engaging memoir about the consequences of impulsive decisions and the things you discover while you're looking for something else. Paul, thank you for taking the time to talk with Australian Hiker. No problem, Tim. Thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to be on. Okay. Now, your book, Fighting Monks and Burning Mountains, is a story of your trip on the 1,200-kilometer Japanese Shinkoko pilgrimage. What drew you to this trail as opposed to any other? Um, so what drew me to the Shikoku pilgrimage was an experience that I actually had in back in college. Um I was taking a class on Japanese religion and culture just because I'd always had this uh, interest in Japan ever since I was, I don't know, like six or eight and first learned that ninjas existed. <laughs> and uh, so in class, they the teacher showed this uh, documentary where the narrator was walking by these just endless rice fields with a sedge hat and a white vest and a walking staff and meditating beneath waterfalls and praying in these just beautiful little Buddhist temples. And just kind of in a vision, I saw myself there doing the same thing. And it, you know, and then about a decade later, I was working an office job and waking up sighing every day and just thinking that, you know, like, this can't be it, you know, that this can't just be what adulthood is and for the rest of my life. And I wanted to do just one more thing, you know, one big thing to just round out 
uh, my travels and I remembered the pilgrimage and the idea of going back to Japan, a place that I've always had an interest in the, you know, the Zen Buddhist religion, the, uh, aesthetic, uh, martial arts and, um, the, you know, the history and the culture. And so I said, that's it. I'm going to hike the Shikoku pilgrimage. Okay. Now, what did you expect to see and to draw from the trip? I mean, I went in uh, very unprepared. And what I expected to see was, you know, a bunch of incredible waterfalls and, you know, endless rice fields and cranes majestically taking off. And, you know, what I expected to gain was uh, the answers to all of the questions of my life forever. So... You know, nor- normal expectations for a trip. <laughs> and, did, and did you have any preconceived ideas? I mean, apart from the cranes and the rice fields, did you have any preconceived ideas about what the landscape and the culture was going to be like? Um, I think I thought my preconceived expectations would was that it would be beautiful and not that hard to hike <laughs> and uh, definitely a normal temperature and not the hottest summer on record. And uh, I think another... Uh, another thing that I should have prepared for better was uh, that most Japanese people uh, only speak Japanese. Like, they don't all speak English. Now, just looking a bit more into the trail itself. So the trail's 1,200 kilometers long. Uh, it does a circuit of, it's Shinkoku Island, is it? Uh, it's Shikoku. Shikoku, okay. Um, and, uh, I mean, this is probably a bit of a rarity as far as long-distance hiking trails are concerned. Most of them tend to start at one point and finish somewhere totally different. This one, and the start point and the finish point, wherever you choose to start, is, is the same point. Now, was that a factor in you deciding to do this hike? Uh, yeah, that was a factor. Um, I just really like the idea of the Shikoku pilgrimage because, so... The, as you said, the trail is 1,200 kilometers, and it visits 88 Shingon Buddhist temples that circle, that dot the rim of Shikoku Island. Now, so it's Shikoku, which in Japanese means four regions, and each region corresponds to a different level of spiritual awakening. So you start in Tokushima, uh, that's where the first temple is, that's the land of awakening faith. And from there, you travel uh, clockwise around the island, visiting uh, Kochi, the land of ascetic training, which is the longest and the most difficult section. From there, you end up uh, in Ihime, which is the land of enlightenment, and finish up uh, at Temple 88 in Kagawa, which is the land of nirvana. But what I think is one of the coolest ideas of the pilgrimage is that then from the land of nirvana, you return to the land of awakening faith to end your journey officially because the uh, the journey of spiritual awakening and spiritual enlightenment doesn't really end it's always a uh, it's it's just always going on so what is the what is the purpose of the pilgrimage for Japanese people? Is it is is it a uh, a thing that um, that they they're expected to do, or is it is it something that people strive to do? Uh, it's it's different uh, for every Japanese person. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, an interesting thing about the pilgrimage is that not a lot of Japanese people actually do it proportionally. 
Um, the pilgrimage is on Shikoku Island, which is the smallest and the most rural of the four main islands. I mean, there wasn't even a bridge built from the mainland to Shikoku until like 1980. And so it's said that more Japanese people have been to Paris than visited Shikoku Island. I think that's, um, that's always the way, isn't it? You tend to go overseas before you, you visit your own country. Yeah, right. Um, so the, the people who do go for the most part are retirees who are looking for, you know, just, uh, a spiritual journey or to pray for the health and well-being of someone else. Some people go and do the journey as a form of prayer for their own success in business or in love or in life. Um, younger people who've gone are typically out of college, uh, you know, and are just going to try to you know, have an adventure in their homeland before moving on to whatever profession they've studied to become. And uh, some people just go to enjoy the rural landscape where, you know, a lot of the time I would be looking out on some part of farmland or some mountain and realize that, you know, the the, the rice that's hanging on drying racks, on bamboo drying racks uh, in the fields, I could be staring at that 300, 500, 1,000 years ago. Yeah. And so it's this land that is in many places very modern. I want to point that out. But there are still these just little pockets of this, you know, ancient land as it was. Yeah, I think that's that's often the thing, isn't it? We're so used to the modern world, try, trying to get to an area that, that that takes you back a bit into the past, sort of, uh, in, in doesn't matter what country you're in, it's always good to see and it always tends to sort of ground you a bit. Okay, now tell us a bit about the garb because the photos I've seen uh, in during the research for this interview, there seems to be a, a uniform for the hikers that are doing this walk. What's that about? So... As you're doing uh, the Shikoku pilgrimage, you are traveling in the footsteps and also spiritually traveling alongside uh, this 8th century monk and holy man uh, called Kukai, uh, or Kobodaishi, which means great Dharma teacher. Uh, so the traditional dress of a pilgrim is you're wearing a round se uh, sedge hat, which, you know, is what a lot of people traditionally associate with people working in rice fields. Uh, and on the front of the hat is the kanji for kukai, because kukai is there to guide you in your journey. You're also wearing a white pilgrim's vest. Uh, the vest is white because on this pilgrimage, you are risking your own life. I mean, it's a lot easier to do now than it was. But uh, it's to sort of promote the seriousness of this, because if you die on the pilgrimage, you're buried in that garb. And running down the back of the vest is the phrase, two traveling as one, because it's to announce that you are traveling alongside Kukai. And the final piece is the walking staff, which represents Kukai walking beside you. And so traditionally, with your walking staff, you're supposed to treat it very respectfully. Uh, when you go inside for the night, you wipe the bottom of the staff and you like place it very uh, intentionally in one corner of your room. 
Or if you're camping like I was, you make sure you don't have anything piled on it and you just sort of lay it out in your tent uh, as a show of respect for the journey that you're on. Okay. And, and uh, just getting back to the, the jacket, you said white. Now, what, is, what does white mean in Japanese culture? Uh, in Asian culture, white is sort of funeral garb. Okay. So it's the same as uh, black clothes or black bands here. Okay. All right. No, that's interesting. And, and, and it is interesting to see. Um, you know, I've seen a lot of photos on social media online. I mean, were most of the pilgrims that you came across wearing the, the garb? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, like, you can either wear it full time when you're traveling. Uh, for me, I would usually, uh, if I was going on a long day, I wouldn't put on the vest just because I was sweating an ungodly amount of sweat <laughs> most days. So I didn't want to completely ruin it. Um, but yeah, when you go into a temple, you are supposed to be wearing the big three. Yeah. Uh, you also have a sort of um, prayer uh, prayer shawl that you put over your neck uh, when you are inside of a temple. Okay, that's, that's interesting. Now, just to take a step back for the moment, usually when I uh, do interviews on, on hiking trails, the very first question I ask is um, about people's hiking resumes. Now, in your case, your story is a bit different and had a direct impact on your experience. So tell us, before deciding to do a 1,200-kilometre hike, what level of hiking experience did you have and how much planning did you do prior to starting your journey? I had no hiking experience, basically. Um, my mom was always trying to get me to go out to hike when I was younger, and I just I was just a chubby little kid who hated it. Uh, I hated the bugs. I hated tripping over roots. And so I didn't really go hiking for a long time after that. And even before I went on the pilgrimage, uh, a couple of day hikes, uh, just because living in Washington State, we're close to a couple of mountain ranges. So, you know, people go for go for a day hike, but nothing like through hiking, nothing where you're carrying a 40 pound pack with all of your possessions in it, nothing where you're planning to go, you know, 18 to 20 miles a day every day. Uh and yeah, as far as preparation went, also pretty much none. Uh, I learned, I never learned how to read a map book before I got on the pilgrimage. Uh, I didn't road test out my hiking shoes to see if they fit. And the only Japanese I spoke was water, thank you. And I knew two ways to express disbelief that a monster was attacking the city. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm a bit the same. I, uh, we did some a couple of semesters of Japanese lessons of, about ten or fifteen years ago when we were thinking about going there, and I think I think the uh, uh, apart from yes and no, I think I can say what time is it, and that's about it. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you're, you're yeah. probably you're probably further ahead than I am in that respect. I uh, yeah. Uh, if uh, the one word that I would recommend learning before you do the pilgrimage is how to say toilet. Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> you you don't want to be like scanning through your uh, your map book looking for that word when you really need one. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. As you say, water, toilet. Um, uh, yeah, probably probably a couple of critical terms there. 
All right. So you had pretty limited hiking experience, and 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 I must admit, you know, looking at some of the long distance trails in the US, it's not unusual for people to start these sort of big trips with having, uh, you know, not having done lots of hiking and overnight camping. But from your perspective, how did your lack of hiking experience and lack of planning impact on the on the trip as an overall thing? I mean, I think in a lot of ways, it made the trip a lot less enjoyable. Uh, I, you know, every step hurt uh, with my shoes, like every step, my feet were taking care of my feet was a three time a day process where I'd have to, you know, rebandage them, cut blisters. Uh, It was ridiculously hot. You know, uh, my third day I spent collapsing from dehydration for about six to eight hours as I tried to get up this mountain. But I think it also, and again, like, I would not recommend it. Please, please prepare better than I did if you're going to do this. But I think that it also led to a much deeper experience for me because it was a lot of digging inside myself and saying, I am going to choose to continue on this journey. That is how important this journey is to me. So, you know, when I was collapsing from dehydration, I, on the third day, I thought, you know what, you might pass out. You might have to be uh, removed by helicopter or, you know, ambulance. But I also thought, okay, you know what, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to continue going. And if I collapse, I collapse. But I will make it to this temple, if at all possible, under my own power. And because of that, because of making that choice, nothing I have ever done physically has been more difficult than that day. So I know for a fact what the hardest thing I've ever done was. And, you know, not um, having my feet hurt every day became another spiritual epiphany on the pilgrimage where, you know, it hurt every day and I would be trying to focus and trying to be present and be in the moment. But I would also have this pain that I kept ignoring or that would make me just fantasize about stopping and being anywhere else. And I had to, you know, at the end of the land of ascetic training, kind of come to peace with that and come to peace with the challenges of this hike and learn that this suffering is also a part of the process. And because of that, I was able to learn how to deal with the hard times that would come up with any other hike. So, yeah, the lack of preparation made it a lot more difficult, but it also made it more spiritually fulfilling in the end. Okay. Now, how did you decide on your start point and your direction? So with, with a circular trail, and pretty much you could almost start anywhere, but is there a, a correct way to start and a correct way to travel? Or you know, do you, is, how does that work? Uh, traditionally, you start at Temple 1. Uh, it's best to do that because Temple 1 also has uh, a gift shop where you pick up your vest, you pick up your hat, you pick up all of your pilgrim gear, your stamp book. Um, you can pick it up in other places on Shikoku, but traditionally, you know, Temple One's just the right place for it. Uh, you know, you walk in, 
having just arrived and you walk out a pilgrim ready to continue. Um, you can, from there, you can go counterclockwise or clockwise around the island. Um, clock, counterclockwise is considered a bit more difficult because you need to reverse every direction sign that you see. And so I just went the traditional uh, clockwise direction from Temple 1 to Temple 2 to Temple 3. And uh, it's just uh, it's the easiest way to do it. So the, and, uh, so the trail is actually marked as if you're, you're, you're heading in a particular direction. Yes. So the trail's marked by uh, these stone and wooden bollards. Some of them are, you know, 100 years old or older. And they have, you know, they're written in kanji, but they have the name of the temple in Roman num- or in, you know, Western numbers and a red arrow that points you the direction you're going whenever you hit a crossroads. Yeah. And there's also um, the Shikoku tourism board has also put little stickers on lampposts and other uh, signs around the island. So if you look, if you're lost or not sure which direct, if you're heading the right direction, just look for little stickers with a little cartoon uh, pilgrim known as a hen row. And uh, that tells you you're going the right way. Okay. Now, what's the trail tread like? Is it is it a mixed mix of form trail roads or uh, what's what's it look like as a as a rough guide? As a rough guide, ninety percent of the time you're going to be on highways. So get ready to be walking on concrete, which is not very fun. Uh, so get comfortable shoes for that. Uh, but the other ten percent is this gorgeous trail that leads you up and down mountain passes and through bamboo forests and past uh, crumbling old homes. Um, so yeah, the, the 10% that goes through the mountain is really just the peak part. Uh, but for most of it, you're walking on highway either in Kochi, you'll mostly be walking by the ocean. Uh, these huge curving green, uh, you know, the ends, the bottoms of the mountain. So you're going to be walking a curving green road in Kochi, in uh, Tokushima, and Ahime. You're mostly going to be walking through rice fields or over mountains. Okay, so uh, I must admit, I, I sort of looked at this and, and looking into into it before this interview, it, it's almost a bit like the um, uh, the Camino uh, in Europe, where you, it's a it's a cultural experience. You're not wandering through wilderness for the majority of the trip, but you're getting you're getting from destination to destination and seeing what the local culture is like, uh, as opposed to wandering through the wilderness. Yes, um, yeah, you uh, you walk through a lot of rice fields you will see every by the end of it you will see every stage of the rice growing process and honestly i feel like through osmosis i now know how to do it (laughs) uh and uh the when you walk by the pacific or the seto um which is the inland sea between uh kyushu and uh, uh shikoku uh you'll see fishermen you'll see just boats bobbing in the harbors um, all kinds of, uh, just all kinds of, um, economy that grows through the ocean or that, uh, is, you know, based on, based on the ocean. Okay. So from a logistical perspective, what were the sleeping arrangements? Were you camping or going through to hostels? What was that like? So there aren't, uh, really hostels on Shikoku. 
the sleeping arrangements, your choices are if you want to rough it, um, you can pitch a tent pretty much anywhere, you know, within reason. Don't do it in someone's backyard. Yeah. Um, but the so the Shikoku Tourism Board has put little rest huts in uh, over a lot of the route. And the rest huts, you know, they're uh, it's a roof open walls and a bench and, you know, a little concrete pad. So that's where I'd set up my tent a lot of the nights. Um, other places you can set it up on lawns. Uh, you can set it up behind a business. No one no one ever hassled me for it. Um, if you want to do it the more comfortable way, there's a lot of different little, uh, little um, mini hotels called Ryokans. Uh, and those cost about... 60 70 bucks a night um and that'll you have to get in at a certain time but it offers you a shower it offers you a, a dinner and breakfast the next day and you know a nice room to sleep with a futon uh if you're a walking pilgrim you also have the option of zen konyado which are basically free pilgrim lodging specifically for walking pilgrims and that can be anywhere from you know, a, a little empty, empty house in the middle of a rice field or, you know, a barren garage behind a temple. Yeah. And did you do a mix of that? Did you, did you pay for some of the, uh, uh, the basic hotels to, just to get a bit of, a bit of recuperation every so often or was mainly, mainly tenting it? Uh, mainly tenting it. I think I paid for one or two, uh, once when I got a leg infection, and uh, another time when I'd gotten some very hard news from back in the States. Yeah. Uh, but for the most part, uh, yeah, camped out every night and I recommend it. It's uh, much cheaper and it allows you to, it allows you a freer time because you're, whenever you want to, you know, set your tent down is what you, when you set your tent down. Uh, if you're doing the Rio cons, you'll you'll have to be in at a certain time yeah and what about food i mean yeah are you, are, do you are you a lover of japanese food or is it, it can you get western food over there as well quite easily um it's a little harder to get western food uh mostly what you're going to be eating out of is uh the convenience stores which they call convenies uh from there usually my breakfast or lunch would be a sandwich or a rice triangle. Um, but yeah, the, uh, if you love udon or ramen, some of the best ramen I've ever had in my life has been on Shikoku Island. Uh, and they have a specific region that's famous for their udon noodles. So yeah, that's, that's some of the best stuff. As far as sushi, I don't believe I ever really had sushi out there. I didn't go for anything high end. Okay. Um, and, and were you actually carrying much food with you or you were pretty much buying as you were going? I was pretty much buying as I was going. Um, it's perfectly fine to do. Although for some reason, for the first couple of weeks, I had a really hard time finding uh, grocery stores on the route um, I think probably if you take a little bit more time and wander through the towns and I don't know, maybe speak enough Japanese to ask, uh, you'll have an easier time than me. But, uh, yeah, I ended up losing, I think 20, 30 pounds in the first two weeks just because 
some nights all I could find for dinner was dried squid and like two bananas. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a bit of a shock to most people doing long distance hikes, particularly males where you do lose a lot of weight. For me, I lose, um, uh, I typically lose about three and a half kilos. So what's that around about nine, nine pounds a week on a hike. So yeah, it's a, <laughs> it's a shock yeah. if you're not aware of it. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Like I had no idea about hiker hunger uh, <laughs> until I did Shikoku. And yeah, the, the first two weeks, it was almost too hot to eat. So I was just like draining weight off of me. And then after that, like once the hiker hunger kicked in, I could I was never not hungry. <laughs> All right. And what about water? And now I know you had an issue with water, as you said, on one particular day, but what are the water sources like? Are they fairly easy to locate? And do you have to carry much water with you to carry you from water source to water source? Um, the water sources are pretty easy to find. Uh, there's a couple of sections, I believe, in Kochi where you're just going to be on the highway and there's, you know, you, you got to go, I don't know, maybe 10 miles Without water, uh, I would not recommend going in the summer um, just because with the humidity and the heat, like I was, I wouldn't stop sweating until about an hour after I'd pitched my tent and climbed into my sleeping bag. I was drinking water, like probably two liters of water every hour. And I did not pee while the sun was up for I think the first 10 days. Yeah. Um, but as far as water sources go, you've got temples, uh, you've got a lot of shops, um, outdoor spigots. Uh, the water situation is pretty good. You definitely, I think you could get by with maybe if you're doing it in the spring or the fall, two liters. Uh, if you're doing it in the summer, maybe three, but it's almost better to just buy just buy an extra water bottle while you're from one of the convenies and just carry that with you as a, you know, emergency if it's too hot out. Okay. So, um, as far as the trip itself is concerned, you, you completed it in 42 days, which, which is pretty good for someone that, that hasn't got much hiking background. Take us through a typical day from wake up to bedtime. So typical day, um, usually wake up, Start walking, find a conveni if I hadn't bought food the night before to eat. Uh, and then you just kind of walk. Uh, you walk, you know, up highways, and then that leads you into forests. You walk through rice fields, and then you come to a temple. Um, the temple is going to be... Uh, anywhere basically which is kind of the excitement of it uh the temple could be in a rice field the temple could be perched on a mountaintop the temple could be beside the ocean uh it could be in a redwood forest that looks like the tent that looks like some seeds dropped and a temple grew instead of another tree so the beginning of the temple ritual is there are these two carved statues called the neo which are the heavenly kings uh, you bow to them, that shows your reverence, and also they scare off any ghosts that are attached to you. You walk into the temple, from there you uh, swing the log clapper into the temple bell, that announces your presence. You go over to uh, a little pool, um, and you take a tin dipper 
and you wash your mouth out, wash your hands, that clean that clears out uh, you know, the dirt, so you're now ready to pray. After that, you head over to the shrine of the main deity, uh, which is one of several Buddhist demigods, depending on the temple. Uh, you say you go through a set series of prayers, including the Heart Sutra. After that, you oh, and uh, as you pray before you pray, you also put in an offering of coins and a signed uh, name slip called Nosama Fuda. Uh, you also give these to anyone who gives you charity along the along the route. Um, you finish the prayers. You go over to uh, a second shrine, which is where Ko- the shrine for Kobo Daishi is. Say the prayers again, including one for him. And after that, you walk over to the stamp office. Uh, so you've got this uh, book of blank pages called your stamp book. And at every temple, you pay 300 yen or about three bucks. And whoever's in the stamp office then takes a calligraphy brush and draws this beautiful calligraphy of the temple's name. And after that, they hit it with three red stamps uh, and usually put a piece of old Japanese newspaper into the book to soak up any ink. Uh, Close the book, you walk out, you bow again to the Neo, and then you move on. And you keep walking by. Sometimes you'll go to one temple a day. Uh, Sometimes you'll visit four. Um, you keep walking until you find you get tired, you find a rest hut, and uh, you set up your tent for the night. And for you, you were saying um, in your book, you're roughly about a 10 to 13 hour day was an, was an average for you? Yep. Yeah, 10 to 13 hours. And that's 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 a that's a pretty good pace for as I said for someone that's not a, a an experienced long distance hiker. You you are setting a good pace for for a first off long distance trip. Yeah, my feet hurt really bad, and I wanted it to be over. Um, I think if I if I could do it again, I would. I, I think I would try to average about fifteen, sixteen miles and extend my trip a little more. Yeah, because uh, there's a lot to see yeah. uh, on Shikoku. Now you you mentioned the stamp book, um, and this is something that uh, you know you do on the uh, the Camino, and you know which is the European main European pilgrimage. What um, you know, would you recommend people use the stamp book, or is this, this something you could sort of bypass? I was thinking about bypassing it before the pilgrimage, and my sister talked me into getting it, and it was one of the best decisions I made. I highly recommend getting the stamp book. Uh, not only is the stamp book kind of one of the main um one of the main ways that a temple earns money and is able to, you know, maintain, but it's such a cool artifact. Um, each stamp is different. And a lot of the stamps, like you can tell what the, or how the, uh, person making the calligraphy was feeling that day. You know, some of the stamps I have are just beautiful works of art. Um, and some of them, you know, I was getting my stamp alongside a large group of what are called bus henro, which are usually elderly people who just take a two a two week bus tour that drives them to each temple where they're led through prayer. And so sometimes it was just an assembly line thing of the person like dunking the brush, like scribble, 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 and you know, it's this, you know, the the ink's running out halfway through. Um, but it's this really beautiful, unique 
uh, uh, membranes of your journey. And this is going to sound a little strange, but, you know, as I was getting the stamps, the stamp book just kind of became another obligation. You know, it was just another part of the thing that I had to get through. But when I finished the pilgrimage and left Shikoku, I was like leafing through it and I could see every page. I saw the person who was giving me the stamp like vividly in my mind. And I had such a memory of where I was at that point. And uh, to this day, it's one of my favorite possessions because it's just this truly cool work of art that I earned. And that's so specific to me. Now, having done the pilgrimage, what time of the year would you recommend hikers look at doing this amazing trip? I would recommend doing it uh, starting in September and most likely like mid-September to October, or I would recommend doing it in the spring. Uh, If you're doing it in the spring, you're going to be looking at, I believe, a bit more uh, humidity, but there will be just some really beautiful blossoms coming out. Uh, There might be some more bugs, too. If you do it in the fall, uh, I believe you're looking at a little bit more rain. But the summer, I would would recommend not doing it. (laughs) Uh, It was – I I don't know where most of your listeners are, but the humidity in Japan is no joke. Uh, It is like – it feels like you're wearing a comforter every, every time you're outside. Yeah, yeah, I must admit, I, I can cope with the heat, but the humidity tends to knock me around really badly. So, yeah, I think uh, uh, I must admit, I'd be, I'd, I'd, the rain doesn't worry me too much, but the humidity is, is something I'd try and avoid where I could. Oh, yeah, highly recommend it. Because, um, yeah, if you, you know, if you're camping out overnight, the rest huts will protect you from the rain, but nothing can protect you from the heat. Okay, so now let's move on to your book, Fighting Monks and Burning Mountains, Misadventures on a Buddhist Pilgrimage. Had you decided to write a book prior to your journey, or did it come to you at a later stage? Um, I'd always wanted to write a book. I've just always, you know, I've just always been a writer. Like, it's one of those things you're compelled to do when you're young, and you never really give it up. Uh, as far as writing a book about the pilgrimage, that was a process. Um, I'd been reading my first uh, week on the pilgrimage. I was reading uh, Bill Bryson's uh, Walk in the Woods. Yep. And Bill Bryson's just, as your listeners may know, an incredible travel writer. Um, so, you know, the, at that point, I'd been charged by a boar and collapsed from dehydration. And reading his book... You know, it's a very entertaining read, but not a lot happens in it. And so I thought, oh, you know what? You know, I could I could probably make a book about uh, this pilgrimage, you know, if I needed to, Um, which, you know, it wasn't the goal. It was just a thought. But, you know, by the end of the pilgrimage, I'd, you know, uh, also hit out from guards in a toilet stall, broke part of an ancient temple, got a leg infection got into a karate match with a priest on a mountaintop and a bunch of other crazy stuff had happened. And I figured, yeah, if I'm going to write a book, it should be about this. Okay. Now now you mentioned a couple of things that happened to you along the way, and that's probably a good time to ask you, can you explain the title uh, and, uh, uh, and how did it's, 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 it's actually a quite strange title. So how did that come about and what does it mean? 
so the title is sort of a distillation of what my pilgrimage was. So before uh, before I went on the pilgrimage, I had kind of, you know, these visions in my head of, uh, you know, going on a this ancient journey in a in a exotic foreign land and, you know, fighting monks uh, on mountaintops like in the movies and, you know, having some old man walk up and just be like, yeah, you're ready and hand me a samurai sword because, you know, why, why wouldn't that happen? I deserve it. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, just kind of all of these, um, a little childish, I'll admit, uh, fantasies about what this grand adventure could be. And then there was the harsh reality of a day like Burning Mountain. Uh, Burning Mountain Temple was the where I was collapsing from dehydration. And it was just such a clear realization to me that I was not prepared. I was in a lot more danger than I thought. And this was going to be so much harder and more challenging than I could have ever imagined. And so the title is sort of the the two aspects of the journey, which was, you know, the, the fantasy and the, uh, interest in, you know, this ancient culture and all of the legends and excitement and the harsh reality of hiking a, you know, 750 mile, 1200 kilometer journey through a mountainous country that was way too hot. <laughs> All right. Uh, so there were there were from my perspective. I I, I must admit I uh, I like my travel books to be written in a particular way, and I think you you from my personal perspective have hit the nail. You know, it really does take you almost on a day by day sort of um, uh, reaction or or. Uh, almost like a diary journal of how your trip progressed. And there were a, quite a few interesting stories in there. So the first one that sort of caught my mind was coming across wild pigs. So so what happened there? So, yeah, that was the first day where I did realize I was over my head. Uh, I was – I diverted off the trail to walk up to this uh, mountaintop temple and – I was just completely wiped, winding through the forest, not sure how far I could go any longer. Like my legs were starting to give out. I ran across uh, a mother boar with her two little piglets. And uh, as I say in the book, you would think boars are awesome because they're made of bacon, uh, but their mouths are filled with knives. And so this boar turns to me, you know, wanting to protect her piglets. And I look at her. Uh, wanting to not get gored at that moment. And she charges and I just find some energy to backpedal away and turn around this tree and hide. And, you know, thankfully she didn't attack more. But yeah, it was uh, it was a big scare. You know, and I ran across a couple of animals like that, you know, snakes and monkeys uh, that all weren't very happy to see me. <laughs> I must admit, I've I've come across uh, wild pigs when I was doing the Bibbulmun track in Western Australia, and the first thing I did was look for piglets. Uh, I think yeah, as soon as there's piglets involved, they, they are a real danger. Um, oh yeah, no, I'm I'm so much more scared of uh, boar than I am of like a bear or a cougar. <laughs> yeah, I think they uh, um, they move pretty quickly when they want to. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now you also mentioned, uh, and you mentioned this previously, you had a leg injury. How did that come about? 
Uh, so the leg injury came about because I was at this temple and each temple has kind of a veranda platform. Uh, so you can kind of circle around it. And the platform was at about the same height as the, as this rock wall and a raised earthen platform that I wanted to get to. And so instead of taking the stairs, I said, "Eh, it's only, you know, two feet, you know, I can jump that. And so I start to jump and in midair in between the sound of the veranda board cracking and the rock wall approaching, I realized that Indiana Jones lied to me and uh, ancient temples are not good leaping platforms. And so I fall through the air, uh, strike my leg on the edge of this rock wall and fall to the ground. And, you know, then I look down at my leg and think, oh, that's not good. And then I look at the temple and think, I don't know how much those cost. So I, like a coward, uh, collect all my stuff, get my stamp and rush out, even though this old man came up to me, you know, concerned and pointed at my leg. And I was just like, no, it's fine. It's fine. And, uh, you know, then sends another guy who speaks a little English over to say, this man can help you. He has medicine. And I'm just like, yeah, it's fine. Cause you know, I don't want to pay for my mistake. And I just rush off into the woods. And then, uh, over the next three to four days, I get a leg infection, uh, which I'm completely, uh, in denial about. I'm just looking down at my leg because it grows red and I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's just sunburn. You know how sunburn makes your legs swell, you know, and leak it's sunburn. And, uh, also, I just should point out, because uh, it's been brought up to me, uh, the temple was ancient. That piece of wood that I broke was not. Like, they, they rebuild those temples all the time. So I didn't, I didn't break some, you know, some famous historical monument. Uh, but in my mind, I had. And so, yeah, then, you know, being an American, I'm like, oh, God, I don't know how much this is going to cost me to cure this leg infection. And, you know, I'm freaking out. And finally, uh, I run into the first Westerner that I'd seen in a month, who was this uh, Australian German woman. And uh, funny enough, like, uh, I look at her and I'm so like spiraling about my leg. The first thing I say to her is, holy shit, a white woman. (laughs) And, uh, and then the second thing I, and oh yeah, and I'm like, do you speak English? And she goes, yeah. And then the second thing I say to a complete stranger is I put my leg on the railing and go, does this look infected to you? And she goes, yes, very clearly. And I was like, okay, yeah, I should go to the hospital then. She's like, yeah, yeah, go, please. And so, you know, being an American, I'm so freaked out. I'm like, this is going to cost, you know, this is going to bankrupt me. Here go, There goes the pilgrimage. You know, this thing is that I put all this money into and this time and this effort is going to end because I didn't take the stairs and finally go to the hospital and, you know, walk out. I'm treated. I walk out. I look at the bill. And then I do a calculation. I'm like $67. (laughs) Yes. God, I hate the American medical system. 
I must admit, when we uh, when we travel anywhere, we we always get travel insurance. But you know, but particularly heading to the states, it's uh, you do not want to go there without travel insurance of some sort. <laughs> as, as you say, it'll bankrupt you if you're not careful. I know it's so brutal. <laughs> <laughs> and I must admit, I was, I was reading that story. I mean, I, um, I, my background is in landscape architecture, and I, uh, uh, I've done a bit of architectural studies, and you know, looking at the the Japanese temples that, as you say, they're they're actually built on a system. Uh, the the parts tend to be interchangeable, and they do tend to rebuild these things. So even the uh, the World Heritage temples in Japan are typically rebuilt every every few years, uh, but it's the it's the continuation of what's there, not the, the bits of wood that are important. Uh, so, as you say, you worry about... Exactly. <laughs> okay. Yeah, like, there, there's no wood that's going to survive, you know, a sub-temperate uh, environment for more than 10 years. Like, yeah, it's, it's going to rot. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the, the temples are stunning. Like they are truly beautiful works of art, and there are some that uh, are UNESCO heritage sites because they are built uh, with no nails. Like some of them are just built with that interlocking wood design. Yeah, which yeah. are truly just yeah amazing to see. Yeah, I think the I think the Japanese certainly perfected the the, the art of building with wood. Uh, as you say, there were mm-hmm. some pre- there are pre- some pretty amazing structures there. Okay, now. At the end of the book, you identify some learnings. Now, from your perspective, how did the trip change you, and have you grown up yet? Um, so, yeah, the one of the reasons I wrote this book and uh, one of the things I wanted to get across is that you can go on a truly amazing journey, you know, something that is an adventure, you know, uh, a story that you want to tell other people and you can still come back from it and not have your life, you know, completely changed and altered. Like I got, I got back from this amazing journey and I, you know, went back to the work and it took, Oh, it took a while before I started realizing what a lot of the lessons were and what I could, you know, put into my own life from it. Uh, I think one of the big lessons that I always try to, get across to people is uh, don't define your journey while you're still on it. Uh, I think that was one of the big realizations and something that really saved my trip because, you know, I went on it and it was not what I expected and it was a lot harder and every day was different and new, but I always kept my mind open to say like, okay, what is this though? You know, what, what can I take away rather than why isn't this what I want it to be? Um, so that was, that was a big one. And I feel like I still try to do that to this day because you never really know uh, what, you know, what the point of something you did was until later. Um, another one is to come to peace with the struggle, you know, whether you're on a long distance hike, whether you're on a vacation and things aren't going well, you really need to come to peace with whatever's bothering you rather than just letting yourself be frustrated by it. Um, I also came away with a greater ability to just be present and be in the moment. 
Um, you know, I, when I was on the pilgrimage, I meditated multiple times a day and it really led me to appreciate, uh, the moments of attention and focus that I could give, you know, it, and, uh, to try to appreciate, you know, the moments of calm a lot more in your life, you know, take the time to notice them. Uh, I think something else, uh, a final one for me was because uh, I always uh, catastrophize everything. Uh, something to remember when you're traveling is that the worst case scenario is not the only scenario. Um, so I took I definitely took that away as well. Uh, as far as have I grown up? Um, I mean, I think I have. Uh, <laughs> I, I haven't really, I never really stopped adventuring. Instead, I, you know, decided to not work a job I hated and decide that settling was, you know, the responsible thing to do. Instead, I left that job. I've worked multiple ones still that since then and generally been happier. I, you know, I doubled down and kept going off on adventures. I, after the pilgrimage, I bicycled across the United States and hiked the Pacific Crest Trail and most recently the Colorado Trail. And I can say that that made all the difference in my life because at the end of it, I met my wife, which is the best thing that's ever happened to me. Okay, no, that's good. I must admit, there's a saying that I always, always love, um, and my wife always uh, uh, refers to me about is growing old is compulsory, growing up is optional. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think I think that's true. You know, I think that you, I think what's more important is find your reason, find your reason for living, and go for that. You know, if your reason for living means that you need to take on a job, that's fine. But, you know, don't don't do something that's making you miserable just because other people say it's the right thing to do. You yeah. know, you, you got to find your reason for doing what you do. Okay, now one final question. Is there a next adventure? And if so, what? Uh, the next adventure, uh, we are hoping once, uh, you know, this pandemic is over is to hike the Annapurna trail in Nepal. Uh, that will be me and my wife's honeymoon. And after that, uh, I think parenthood is going to be the adventure we're going on next. Yeah. Actually the Annapurna trail, is that the long one? Is that a, a number of months that one? Or I think no, it... I believe that's only 90 miles. Okay. All right. Uh, the, I think the only long journey I have left to do uh, in America would be the continental divide and, uh, maybe the Te Aurora in New Zealand. Yep. I mean, uh, what, what long trail are you going for next? Well, I, I was supposed to do the Australian Alps walking track last year and the, the fires from the previous summer threw that out. Um, I'm hoping to do that this year. And then, um, uh, for me and next year is the, uh, the plan is to do the, uh, uh, the Heisen Trail in South Australia, which is a, a roughly about a twelve hundred kilometre uh, track as well. So, uh, oh, wow. but I'm I'm waiting on the COVID to see what happens there, and waiting on seeing if the uh, Australian Alps uh, walking track is is in fact going to be open again this year. Otherwise, I might do a, a swap around. Um, but I need to start making decisions on that sooner rather than later. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I know, right? Just wish wish we had a timeline for when COVID was going to be done. And I think, as I mentioned to Paul at the start of this interview, um, having had no knowledge of the Shikoku Trail before this interview, uh, it has now been added to my list. It's something that I definitely am keen to do at some point in the future. Yeah, to uh, just put a final plug in for my book, Fighting Monks and Burning Mountains, which is available on Amazon in ebook, audiobook, and print. Um, I wrote the book not just as a travel memoir, but I also include a lot of the history, culture, and legends of Shikoku. And uh, we didn't cover it uh, in this talk, but it truly is a fascinating place and uh, uh, with just an amazing history that I think is worth, uh, worth reading about. Okay, that's great. So we've been talking with Paul Barrick about the Shikoku pilgrimage and his book Fighting Monks and Paul. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Okay, so that was our interview with Paul Barak on his amazing journey on the Shikoku Pilgrimage Trail, uh, Shikoku Island in Japan. Now, first up, I think I mentioned this during the episode. Uh, from my perspective, this was a, a trail that I wasn't aware of. Um, I'd always wanted to go and visit Japan, and I think really from reading the book and uh, interviewing Paul, uh, pretty much this has now been added to my ever-expanding list of uh, long-distance <laughs> hikes that I want to go through and do. Now, as a general comment, this is a pilgrimage trail rather than a, a hike, and, and, and the difference there tends to be that, um, like the Camino, uh, you tend to be walking from town to town or village to village. Uh, you're relying on uh, konbinis, uh, which is the uh, the Japanese version of little convenience stores. Uh, uh, so there's no real need to be carrying a stove and sort of 10 days worth of food or eight days worth of food. You can pretty much resupply as you go. Well, as long as you know where to look. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Paul said he, he struggled to find them to start with, so you, you may need to actually go off uh, off trail slightly. Uh, and I think that's probably a, a good overall thing in that you know, Paul did say he virtually did no preparation for this at all, not really a hiker, and decides he's going to do a 1,200-kilometre pilgrimage trail as his first off-serious hike. Um, you know, and he... He made any any one of a, a number of mistakes, which I think he freely admits, like choosing to go in the middle of summer, which is probably not the time to go, uh, and particularly the summer that he chose was the hottest on record at that time. Um, you know, not having uh, probably enough Japanese, you know, le learning or having words <laughs> like toilet uh, is probably one of those things is you know the, the must learn words if you are travelling to an overseas country that English isn't the first language. Well, he had very little <laughs> Japanese, <laughs> so a little bit more than very little would be a good idea, I think. Yeah, and as you mentioned, you know, if Godzilla decides to attack Tokyo, he's probably he probably knows what's going on, but that's probably about it. Um, this sounded like a fairly interesting trail to me, but it is a pilgrimage trail. So he did mention that you know you're walking through towns, you're walking through villages, you're walking along highways. Uh, you're walking through rural areas. So it's it's a, an opportunity to see how um, at least part of the Japanese culture uh, is. And from what he was saying, it's probably uh, Japanese culture um, at its most normal. It's not the, 
the hubbub and the, the high tech of Tokyo. It really is. Uh, this is real life Japan. Uh, lots of rural areas. And as he made the comment, you know, he's going past rice farms that are probably using the same practices they used a thousand years ago. Um, so that was quite interesting there. Yeah, look, I think uh, there were a couple of things that stood out for me. Um, the ritual side, I think, of visiting the temples, I, I found quite interesting. And, um, you know, there's this an expectation that you'll respect that and that you'll engage with that. So, you know, having a bit of understanding and a bit of a knowledge about that before you go, I think would be um, helpful. And I think also, you know, the, the cultural aspects of experiencing uh, the way of life uh, on the island and, um, you know, he said some of it was uh, very modern and, and other bits by contrast were very rural and he he mentioned um the the fish drying on the the rack and he could imagine that that's something that's you know been in place or um a, a process that's been happening for hundreds of years now there are quite a few people that do this trip on an annual basis but by far the biggest majority are those that do it as a, a guided bus tour or do it by road in a, in a car um, they're really um, in doing some research on this trail as part of this uh, interview process, there's probably only a couple of hundred that actually walk the pilgrimage trail each year. And even then, he he made the or in, in in reading the book, he came across a a couple that were doing this as part of their honeymoon. Um, so you know there will be uh, Japanese people who do sections of the trail each year without doing it at all in one go. Um, you know, this is designed as a an approximately forty two day trip. Yeah, that's quite a long uh, one, isn't it? Yeah, and that's roughly thirty kilometers a day. But when you think about this, it's not a uh, a remote hiking trip. You are relying on resupply and food basically on a daily basis through the towns and villages. Uh, so you're not having to carry that eight days worth of food. So for most people, you know. Looking at some of the photos that I've seen when you go online and go to the tourist uh, uh, website, which we've got a link to in our show notes, um, you know the packs aren't particularly large, and as a result, you can probably travel a bit faster uh, than you would do if you're walking through a remote bush, having to navigate uh, and having to carry a, a heavy pack. Yeah, I think that's a that's possible. I think though. You know, you are there for the experience of the temples and I would imagine being at a temple, uh, preparing to enter, entering and respecting the temple and then departing the temple would actually take you quite a bit of time. So uh, he did say on one of the days, you know, you might only uh, visit one temple. On others, you know, there were three or four. So you could you could travel quite fast um, your 30 kilometers might not take you too long but you're there for the experience of the temple so you wouldn't want to short circuit uh, that process or that experience too much and I think from my perspective I, I, was, I was actually thinking that myself uh, 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 with with putting this podcast together I think there was one day there you actually visit five temples wow. that, are, that, are, that are all fairly close together uh, particularly at the start of the walk um, but even if you just Go in there, uh, go through the motions of um, the, uh, you know, the, the the praying and the bowing, and 
walk straight out after gotten your stamp, even that's a time-consuming process, let alone looking around, taking photos of what's there. That's so, right. So for me, I think in most cases I would be spending half an hour to an hour potentially at each each temple, uh, and that's what could actually take the time. Yeah, and he did say that his days were quite long. Um, I guess he's not preparing um, food in that. It's it's all pretty uh, uh, the cultural version of fast food. Uh, so the udon noodles uh, are presumably pre-prepared or prepared for you to purchase. Um, so, you know, there is a little bit of up and down in terms of how much time you spend doing something versus something else. But, you know, the experience is about the temples and it's about the culture. So you you wouldn't want to uh, speed it up too much. He did mention that he was losing a bit of weight, particularly in the first part of the trip. Uh, and that's not unsurprising. But, you know, for someone who hadn't done much uh, hiking before and even someone who has done hiking Long-distance hikes tend to uh, drop the weight off pretty, pretty quickly. And in the case of Japan, where you're basically not eating fat and sugar in most cases, you know, the diet is typically much healthier than Western diets. So you're, you're, um, you, know, you, you might be eating a lot of food and it might be filling, but it's not putting a lot of body fat onto you. Well, I guess that's assuming also you're going for traditional um, food. Um, maybe if at the convenience stores there's some other things that you could purchase. <laughs> I think there's something like 80 varieties of Kit Kat chocolates um, and there's some really weird ones. Uh, but again, that's just, that's just what happens in different cultures around the world. Um, I was also interested in the garb that, uh, that, that the, uh, uh, the Henro or the pilgrims wear. Uh, and this is, you know, the hat... Uh, the walking staff and the white coat, a uh, white jacket, uh, just to indicate that you are on a pilgrimage. Um, and that's that's an interesting sort of thing, you know, that um, I think, you know, the Japanese obviously appreciate that people are willing to do this and they, they see it as something that, from their perspective, while not many of them do, they do appreciate that people are willing to do this, whether they're Japanese or not, and have a good look around. And this and, and the garb that you're wearing is an indication that that's what you're doing, not just some random person walking in the middle of nowhere. Well, uh, it's a good way to identify them and also a good way to be able to support them as well, I would imagine, along the way. Cost-wise, it didn't seem to be too expensive. Um, and I think uh, they're saying that in the, the tourism websites that walking is by far the dearest way to do this because it's obviously taking you a lot longer. Um, but even having said that, it wasn't a huge expense. You know, uh, Paul was saying that you know he he was typically going in and getting udon noodles. He wasn't he was keeping away from the sashimi and the more upmarket sort of uh, food. But even then, uh, I, I I went through and had a look at some of the convenience websites to, to see what's available. And as much as people think that Japan is quite expensive, and it can be if you go up market or if you stay in the tourist areas, uh, certainly once you get into the more remote areas, which are pretty much local sort of pricing, it's not that expensive. Um, you know, the fact that you're able to go through and camp in pretty much most places without too much problem, the fact that there are some uh, huts set aside for pilgrims, so if you do want to camp you know, and carry a sleeping bag and a, a tent, uh, that's certainly a possibility. Um, and you know, he said that he actually can't, uh, stayed in a couple of the, uh, the the more basic hostels or hotels rather, uh, and even then it wasn't that expensive. So it's 
it's the sort of thing that this is definitely a very different trip. It's not a remote wilderness trip by far. It is a pilgrimage, just like the Camino is, um, and it has a different sort of atmosphere to it. Um, and Paul was saying that he did come across other pilgrims, but not hundreds of them, because really that's the the year's sort of pilgrimage. And he chose, you know, I, I can imagine that in midwinter and midsummer, there's not that many of them around. You're at, most people would be doing it for the cherry blossom season in springtime or the autumn foliage and the autumn period. And again, looking at uh, the, uh, the the tourism websites, that's what they're recommending if you want to get the the, the Japanese experience with the, the cherry blossom or the, or the autumn foliage. Um, I think from my perspective, and again, it's purely, it's a toss up here. I think spring would certainly be really good. Um, and for me, that's the time of the year I tend to like going going hiking anyway. Uh, you know, either that sort of um, uh, March, April, May or uh, August, September, October sort of period uh, where it's not too hot, not too cold. Yeah, I think so. Certainly the summer didn't sound very appealing, did it? You know, when he was saying he was still still perspiring um, an hour after he'd finished uh, the hiking for the day. So it uh, just took a long time and also, um, you know, I guess the, the impact of all of that and the need to make sure that you are well hydrated along the way. Now, in relation to his book, uh, Fighting Monks and Burning Mountain, um, that's the short name of it because it's actually a relatively <laughs> long name. Um, it, we do have done a book review uh, where we talk a bit more in detail about the book uh, and certainly the link to the book review will be on the show notes. Um, but as strange a name as it does seem, it is very grounded in things that happened to him on the walk itself and he did end up fighting a monk. Uh, not out of anger, but just because the monk happened to be into karate, as did Paul. Uh, and Burning Mountain was, I think, day one, or I think it was very early in the trip, where he felt like he was going to die from lack of water. Uh, and that was actually on a visiting a, um, a monastery that was actually off trail, but he, th- he felt that he should go and see. So there's a lot of really interesting stories throughout the book. It's one of those sort of books that even if you have no intent of ever visiting this trail and doing this pilgrimage, it's an interesting book and it's an interesting set of stories. There's a lot that happens to him. Uh, some of it's uh, very much through his own uh, misplanning or um, uh, inability to um, speak the language, uh, but it, it, it is really enjoyable read. Yeah, and, uh, you know, as he was saying, it's also a great opportunity to uh, learn more about uh, the island, about the the temples, um, about the cultural experience as well. So not just about uh, his maybe misadventures, um, also about what others will experience when they're there as well. Okay, we hope you've enjoyed this podcast. And as we said, go through and have a look at the book review uh, of which the link and some photos will be in the show notes um, and it'll give you a better indication of what the book's about. It really is well worth a, a read. That's all for me. Bye for now. And bye from me. Uh, I would imagine... Um, preparing to enter a tent, and I would imagine preparing to enter 
a temple, uh, visiting the temple, and then uh, departing the tent. And I would imagine that preparing to em- <laughs> and I would imagine preparing to enter a temple, uh, being at a tent temple. <laughs> I've got tentacles. 